Rebels. Welcome to Rebel Parenting. We appreciate you listening and are excited to be here with you today. Sign up for our newsletter. Text the word REBEL, 444-999. Once again, to sign up for our newsletter and receive exclusive information and alerts and updates, text the word REBEL to 444-999. Don't miss our Facebook Live videos every Monday and Friday morning at 8 Pacific, 11 Eastern. My goodness, Rebels, we have a program for you today. I really didn't know how this program would go. We called Dr. Jim Garlow, the lead pastor at Skyline Church, to talk about what millennials need to know about Washington, D.C. Dr. Garlow has a prayer event in Washington, D.C. every single Wednesday. It's a worship service for Congress and their staff. He covered so many topics today. We talked about racial healing, race relations, immigration, revival among millennials, should we support Israel, judicial prison reform, education, tutoring. I mean, we covered so many hot topics that are all over the news today. You are going to love this broadcast. Not only does he talk about it, but his church is actually doing it and working in it. This is an intelligent man, people. He has an associate's degree from Oklahoma Wesleyan, a BA and MA from Southern Nazarene University, a master's of divinity, a master's of theology, and a PhD. He is so learned. It is a fantastic broadcast. Without any further ado, here is our interview with Dr. Jim Garlow right here on Rebel Parenting. Dr. Garlow, we appreciate you coming on Rebel Parenting today. Thanks for taking time out of your schedule. A joy to be on with you, my friend. Definitely. It was so good to see you in Washington, D.C. We shot so many videos there. We filmed at your prairie event. How long have you been doing the prairie event at the inaugurations? Well, at, an, at the inauguration itself, that's the first time ever. Now, what oh. we do have in D.C., uh, our church uh, sponsors what's called the Jefferson Gathering. That's a weekly worship service every week in the U.S. Capitol building for members of Congress and for their staff. We've been doing that. Uh, for two and a half years, we um, mm. hired an associate pastor. Uh, he was actually from Texas. We partnered with him. We moved him to Washington, D.C., <laughs> bought, a, bought a condo directly across the street from the Supreme Court. Wow. And he has had a ministry uh, with these weekly worship services called the Jefferson Gathering. You see, there, people don't realize there were weekly worship services held in the U.S. Capitol building from 1800 until 1869. Then they were stopped for 145 years, and we restarted those uh, as of uh, July of 2014. So we have Wednesday night services for members of Congress because they fly home on oh, weekends. Yeah. Right, right. Sure. We have Sunday morning services then uh, in the Capitol building for members of the Capitol Police uh, at the time of their shift change. There's 3,000, I believe there's 3,000 members of the Capitol Police and other federal employees. So we have those uh, weekly worship services going on in the Capitol, Capitol building. That's fantastic. It really is amazing. You are ministering directly to the people that are affecting us every single day. And then for the police too, my mm. goodness. What kind of response are you getting? How I mean, how many people are coming? Uh, you know, the pastor, we got to meet him at the prayer gathering the day before the inauguration. What's the, what are those relationships like? How is that going? Well, the relationships are going incredible. Of the 535 members of Congress, I think uh, Dan Cummins is our pastor there, and his mm -hmm. wife Joanne is equally anointed and talented. They probably have uh, really close, reasonably close relationships with at least 150 members of Congress and increasing. 
it's going uh, up on a continual basis because he just he 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 lives in the Capitol building there, wow. ministering to people. And what what is most encouraging is the the ministry one on one that's happening through the week. Uh, the reports are just electrifying. It far exceeded what we thought possible. Dr. Garlow, what do we not know about our senators and congressmen? What's their day-to-day life like? We complain so much about what they do. We complain about special interest groups. Mm -hmm. We complain about lobbying. You know, we're great at uh, complaining and negativity. What do we not know about their lives that would give us a glimpse into the stress, the pressure that they're under on a daily basis? How can we pray for them? Give us a, a glimpse into their lives. Well, with all the challenges we've had in D.C., uh, my view, after being there, and I, I don't go every single week, but I'm out there often, mm. uh, and my view of the Congress has risen dramatically. Mm. We have wonderful people serving in Congress. They're, they're people like all the people we know. We, we were surrounded by many wonderful people. And then uh, I recognize there's bad apples in the midst, but boy, there, I, I am way more impressed with members of Congress uh, than I have ever been, because I know way more now. Mm. Sure. Yeah. And the second thing is their lives are so intense. I'll give you just, just one example. The the, the, the Congress, Congresswoman who helped us the most was Michelle Bachman when we first started. Mm-hmm. And, and she was 100% supportive of what we were doing in the Jefferson Gathering. Mm. But even her schedule was so intense, the demands were so profound, when she came to the, the, our first week, our opening week, I saw the stress on her face. She could only stay for a few minutes, and then she was off. Another guy was with one Congress member. I was with him, and he said, let me check my schedule. He said these words. He says, they have my schedule so garbaged up. That's what he, <laughs> he – it's just severely overloaded. The demands on them, horrific. At one point, uh, Congressman Bachman actually told me, to, to be a specialist in the area that she was the, – the committee that she was on, mm-hmm. she was reading so much that she had to make a rule that every appointment could not be more than three minutes. Whoa. This is this is how demanding their schedules are just out of control. Whoa. The spiritual level, I am I am extremely encouraged. We have quite a few – got a number that are former pastors that are now uh, members of Congress. Mm. Oh, I didn't but know that. There, uh, there's, there's a number of them in that category. But I I am extremely encouraged with their spiritual sensitivities and their astuteness to what needs to happen. And, and just something that's close to my own heart, I, I feel like I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but I felt like <laughs> the Lord has given us a 30-month window. And I'm not making that as a prophecy. It's more of a gut instinct. Yeah. But the Lord has given us a 30-month window to address racial healing, number one. Number two, to address the immigration problem and resolve it. <clears throat> number three, and this will this will go to more directly to the whole purpose of your, your broadcast, but number three, to see a revival break out among millennials. Mm. Those three areas, and I would add on a fourth, and that is to reinstitute the support of Israel we once knew by every president until the, until the last one. And, and, and so those three areas, plus the Israel one, I think are, are so crisis, mm. so critical, and the Lord has given a window for the church, 30 months, that we need to see an outbreak of racial healing. We need to see the immigration problem resolved, and I, I've written, a, I won't go into a commercial on my book, Well-Versed, but I've written a book, Well-Versed, Biblical Answers to Today's Tough Issues, where I lay out how we could do that, and, and, and then the third one, Among Millennials, an outbreak 
comparable to the Jesus movement that outbroke that broke out in in, in the nineteen early nineteen seventies. Yeah. Because it's got to change the heart, and when the heart is changed, then the millennials will be more committed mm. to the governmental outworkings of what the scripture has to say on issues. That's fantastic. We and we definitely are praying for the revival too, and I think it'll come. I really do. I think this is this is coming. Dr. Garlow, racial healing is such an important topic today. It is all over the news. Um, and I think it's it's not just racial, but it's healing amongst people that feel disenfranchised. It's the outcast, it's the you know, the outlier, so to speak, that's feeling alone and isolated, whether it be orientation or race or or those things. Uh, how are you accomplishing that in your church? I mean, it's a big topic for you. You talk about it openly and honestly. What's working for your congregation? Well, first of all, the Holy Spirit convicted me on this during a 21-day fast two years ago right now. Mm. No, it was, it was 2015, I believe it was. I, can't, I think it was 2015, uh, a 21-day fast, and I, I didn't know what the Lord would speak out of it, but out of it was this issue. And so he sent me on kind of what I would call listening tour. So I purposely set up appointments with my African-American brothers. And this would be true of Hispanics as well, but particularly African-Americans, where I felt I was the focus. And with small groups uh, of them and said, now talk to me. Mm. Help me understand. I do not grasp the depth of your wounding here. Help me understand this. And uh, so I pulled in some other white pastors with me, some Anglos, and said, let's Let's listen what they, and we're not allowed to really talk much. We, mm-hmm. we can ask questions, mm-hmm. but let's dump our view right now, and let's, let's listen because there's some things going on here we do not grasp. So that's, I've done that a, a, a lot. And what was some of the things they had stated? Well, number one, I, I underestimated the level of, of fear, mm-hmm. uh, particularly black males feel when they're driving down a street and they see a police car, oh. I'm very supportive of the police and all everybody I know is. And I understand that. Uh, but the fact is, I mean, people that you and I would know and run with and, and pastors, pastors of prominence, black pastors of prominence mm. that, have, that, have, that, have, that have been pulled over and were, were quite frankly terrified what might happen in that moment. This is an area that I did not grasp. Adequately, and I don't say that for one moment not supporting our police. I th- yeah. feel like our police in America are under assault and yes, deserve yes. our support. For sure. Uh, then, then the, the the real working out of this for me in very practical, dynamic ways. I was taught by Bishop Harry Jackson and Bishop T D Jakes, and mm. I went to a conference, 125 of us, invitation only, and the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, "Don't you talk at that conference." We all had microphones in front of us, sort of like the United Nations. <laughs> 25 of us had microphones in front of us, all of us. And we could hit a button, we could all talk. And the Holy Spirit said to me, don't you speak. You don't know anything. You came to learn. Don't you talk. Don't you talk. And so I didn't the entire day. I never punched the button and uh, my mic to, to activate my microphone because I felt I, I, had nothing, I had nothing to contribute. I was writing notes furiously saying, Lord, teach me, teach me. Mm-hmm. But out of that came this. I know we're tempted to say, well, I'm not racist. Some of my best friends are black. Yeah. That doesn't cut it. That just yeah. does not cut it. What we have to do is concrete. And I, I came away with five things, four of them from that conference, but five from just overall. The first one is the educational level. What does it take for us in the more suburban churches to invest in aggressive tutoring in our more urban churches? Tutoring after school, the educational component. There's an expression I don't know that it's an actual 
legal one that's followed at all, but there is an expression that goes like this. If a little, if an African-American boy cannot read by third grade, that means you got to prepare a prison cell for him. Now, that's oh, heartbreaking. Yep. That is. It's heartbreaking. And so I, I, I'm trying to get our, our condition. What I've just started doing, we're, we're early stages of this, meeting with uh, uh, superintendents of school or principal of school saying, okay, how do I activate my congregation in this arena? Mm-hmm. The next one is economic incentives and investments in the urban area. Now, that's been around for a long time. I'm not talking about throwing money at something. Otherwise, you just have Detroit all over again. Yeah. Or there's investment of, of, of the heart with the dollars. And there's where, at that point, the church has to partner with the, the governmental agencies and, and private corporations and such. That was a little tougher. I admit it's a lot tougher. The next one is judicial reform and prison reform. They're related. Mm-hmm. My wife uh, took a tour of a federal prison. It happened to be in my home state where I come from, the state of Kansas, the famous Leavenworth prison. Mm. And I was shocked what I learned. I was stunned when I learned how many people are held there. I'm a law and order guy. You, mm. you do the crime, you do the time. But I could, was stunned at how many are, are, are literally in a locked-in city where they're walking the hallways, going to school, going to going to the store, going to their business, whether they're going to work interior in the prison that properly rehabilitated should be and could be on the outside. That's right. And this, we, the average white family does not grasp this. Virtually every black family does. And this is something, if, if, white, if blacks complain about that, they're accused of whining. Right, so right. We, we, as, we have, as whites who don't understand this must come up to speed and move alongside and, and become the voices for this cause. And along with that, the judicial reform because of a situation that developed that I won't go into, I got thrust into the judicial system in ways I did not want to. And as a result of that, I learned so much in the last two years. It wasn't my plan to be there. It wasn't anything that I did, but I got thrust in by, by a friend's actions, and I, I became very involved. And what I saw stunned me. Mm-hmm. And, and once again... If the blacks complain, they're accused of being whiny. And so we as whites have to be the one to become the defenders at this point. And the good news is in D.C., in the members of Congress, but it can't just come from Congress, Hmm. but there are black and white, there are Republican and Democrat, fully aware of the radical overhaul that has to happen. Otherwise, the incarceration rate Hmm. is exorbitantly high. I, I'm, I'm talking about people who could be on the outside rehabilitated yeah. Yeah. if we, we had the normal uh, structures in place. And then the fifth one is the big one. This is the big one, and that's whatever we can do possibly. And I, I don't I don't know how to solve this. God's just going to have to help us miraculously. We've got to help reinstitute the black family. When dads are not there, <clears throat> problems come. Whether you're white or black, yeah. that happens. But in the black family, in the urban areas— there are there, there are just no dads hardly, mm. and 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 the kind of even how the social mm-hmm. structure, the social workers' laws and rules, how they how they denigrate against the black family, where dads are absent, problems occur. The reinstitution of the black family, especially fathers, and then a final one comes from Senator James Langford from Oklahoma, a strong a strong believer. Actually, he was a Baptist. He's a Southern Baptist pastor, but he's a wonderful senator. And before that, he was a representative from the state of Oklahoma. He's a friend and one who I respect so highly. He has said, he makes it very simple. He said, if every person who went to a church on Sunday would simply invite a person of a different ethnic background, a different race, 
to their home for a meal. We could solve the racial pain of this country hmm. in a short span of time. If everyone who calls themselves a follower of Christ would invite somebody of the other race, a different ethnic background, into their home for a meal. Now, where I come from, people don't invite people for, into their homes for meals hardly anymore. They all go out. So, yeah. okay, just go to a restaurant. Take a family. If you're white, take a black or Hispanic. If you're a Hispanic, take a black or a – you get the picture. Yeah. And, and go share a meal together and talk. We could reduce human suffering. We could reduce the racial tension. We could even have an impact on reducing poverty. Now, everything I've listed are practically the only one that's, that's really super tough. And some of them involve laws and legislation. They're a little tougher. One involves economic investments in tougher areas. Now, that one's a harder force to do. But the rest of these things I've listed, these are doable things. Yes. We, we could, we, they're practical and they're, they're dual. Uh, on the area of prison and judicial reform, it, all we have to do is get acquainted. There's plenty of even conservative organizations that are trying to make a change. We always associate those with left-wing organizations. Yeah. No, this is a biblical issue. I don't believe in, in social justice, but I believe in biblical justice. Mm -hmm. It's a biblical justice issue, and we can get involved. So I've tried to make our congregation astutely aware of this, and there were early stages of let's take a very much more proactive, aggressive stance on this whole issue of, of the, the tutoring that we can be, even in, in the act of tutoring, what would come out of that if, if a white family is tutoring a black child? What would come out of that is way much more, more than just the child would improve academically. Yeah. What would come out of that is a relationship. And who knows, that family may end up kind of helping that child have money to go to college. Who knows what kind of relationships can be formed. And so uh, it, it, some of these things are very, just very doable. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Dr. Garlow, you have to be getting some pushback from conservatives. Listen, I believe in prison reform. Uh, the judicial system is so broken. It's really interesting. If you talk to, uh, we have mostly white friends. We live in Colorado Springs. It's a really white area. Most people we do know don't know one person that's ever been to jail. I'm unique. I've been to jail once. Uh, long story short, tickets, whatever. Uh, most white people don't know someone that's been to jail. Virtually every black person I know has a personal connection to someone, someone in jail. Not just they know of someone that went to jail, but they have a family member, cousin, best friend. I mean, we are incarcerating people at an alarming rate and we don't talk about it. What kind of pushback do you get when you talk about things like that? Because people are like, oh, come on. You know, they have just the same opportunity as everybody else does. And that's not true. Well, I'm not getting near the pushback that I would have thought I would have gotten. I've written on this pretty candidly in my, my book, Well Versed. And, and we, by the way, it's a book that outlines uh, the, the, the biblical underpinnings, the 30 political issues, including the ones we're talking about. And I think the reason is, is because uh, God has softened the heart. And this is anecdotal. This is not statistic. And yeah. I admit that. All right. There is more openness on the part of white Americans to say we must do something mm -hmm. uh, to address yeah. the racial hurt and wounding in this nation. And I have not found I, I've not run into hardly any pushback. It's been remarkably little. And even on, on, on how to resolve, not that you necessarily want to go into this right now, but how to how to address the immigration issue. In a way that I think is biblical. Hey, and Dr. Garlow, right. let's get into it. I'm okay with Give that. It. We've <laughs> talked about immigration a lot. I mean, 
you know, Laura and I knew a family. The mom came to America illegally with a one and a two-year-old, uh, got married in America, has had a child. She's legal. Her kids are in their early 20s. They've been here for 20 years each, 21 and 22. They're not American citizens. They're not Mexican citizens. They're in limbo, but we're forcing them into decisions and we, you can't kick people out. There has to be, it, it's not an easy fix. That's what I want people to understand. Anybody that says there's an easy fix is lying to you. Talk about immigration. Yeah. It's so volatile. And yet it's, we have to be compassionate as conservatives or we're going to lose America. It needs, I think the premise that we have to start with, and I, by the way, I, I really expected a lot of pushback on this. My chapter on racism, I didn't expect much, didn't get much. I did expect to get some real flack on the immigration. There were some people who were ordering large quantities of it. And I said, well, before you order, let me tell you what I say so you'll understand. But here's – and I, I probably – I thought I would frustrate both those on the right and the left. And I really don't care about the phrases right and left. I care about right versus wrong. But <laughs> I, I frankly thought that I would offend people on both sides on this one. But – I, I, I have not gotten pushback, which tells me there is a path forward. Mm. And that is, I start with this premise that what created illegal aliens was an illegal government. By that I mean a huh. government that was functioning illegally. By that I mean there's a term called nullification. That's when you violate your own laws. And our government self nullified it, 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 both Republicans and Democrats. I went down and took what's called border school. Uh, a lady named Pam Ferroni put on a border school down in El Paso. And so I went down there three days. That does not make me an expert, nor do I claim to be. But I got connected with the some of the sheriffs in the Southwest Sheriff Border Association. There's 31 counties in America that border the uh, U.S.-Mexican border. Mm -hmm. Two here in California, uh, then Arizona. And you have a whole bunch in, in, in Texas. Mm -hmm. At the tip of Texas was a sheriff by the name of Ziggy Gonzalez. And he was the one who put together the Southwest Sheriff's Border Association. Another man named Arth West out of Hudspeth County, and that's the El Paso area. Okay. And they, they were the primary ones who influenced my thinking. And they took us out on the border. They, we met with, I don't know, we, we probably had a dozen speakers and uh, maybe 500 photographs. Then we went to what's called EPIC. That's the El Paso Information Center. Now, in, in going through that and in trying to follow up since then and understanding this, what happened was is because – the Democrats wanted quick votes and the Republicans wanted cheap labor. The results is they both blinked an eye oh. at this and created a massive problem of letting people across illegally. Oh. And and so what, what happened instead both these these sheriffs I, I, I saw photographs of them meeting with George Bush, meeting with President Obama. Uh, and the, when, they, when they were presidents, George Bush, the uh, President Bush, the, the younger, in which they pleaded for support to stop this. And both the Democrats and Republicans refused to do it mm. for, the, for the reasons I've just given. Yeah. And as a result of that, we have the laws. The laws are there. We don't need more laws. But they refuse to follow. Mm -hmm. If they would have followed the laws for the last 40 to 50 years, we would not have a problem. Huh. They, they winked at the laws. Right. They allowed the people in. And then finally, when it gets overblown and so bloated and we have a horrific problem, right. somebody comes along and says, we're going to enforce the law. Well, no, what created these, this problem was a government who refused to force law. So we start there. Now, the reason I say that is I know governments don't historically say, I'm sorry, we did wrong. We <laughs> yeah. repent of our sin. I know that. However, my, my wife, my wife has been to, to Israel 58 times, 
and and she worked she works a lot with Jewish Holocaust survivors. And in 1939, uh, this story is going to make sense and tie back into immigration in a moment. Yeah. In 1939, a ship came with about a thousand Jewish men, women, children, and it was turned away from Cuba, and they were fleeing Hitler. Then it was turned away at gunpoint gunpoint by the Coast Guard uh, from Miami and sent back. And four countries took them in. Many of them all got, got killed in the Holocaust. And some of them are still living. My wife is a group of people who helped gather the few survivors on the 70th anniversary. And the State Department, and this is Senate Bill 111 in the 111th Congress, passed a resolution saying we should never, ever treat immigrants or refugees like that again in that particular situation. And the State Department is not allowed to apologize. So my wife took the microphone at the State Department mm. meeting. And she says, we ask forgiveness for our sin, for what we did to you as the Jewish, as an American nation of the Jewish people. Oh, I like and your wife. Yeah. That, 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 was, that was a, that set in motion Hitler's uh, final solution. When he saw the U.S. would not take them in, he said, we can get away with this now. We can kill six million of them. And he did. Mm. <clears throat> now, I, I say that because the government, the government in that situation came as close as it's going to come to a recognition of an apology. Uh, we're not getting any official apology from the government for, for legal reasons and, and, and the reparations that would come and all that. So, But at least we recognize our government functioned illegally. If I was a dad with five children in Mexico City and my kids did not have food and I heard that the government was no longer enforcing the law, I'd go across that border, get a job, and feed my kids. Of course. When a law is not enforced, there's a technical word, it's called destitute. When a law goes in destitute, it means it, it, it ceases to be a law, mm -hmm. even though it's on the books. It doesn't mean anything. In California, for example, Article 1, Section 7.5 of the California Constitution, it still has, still today, has the 14 words, only marriage between a man and a woman is valid and recognized in California. Yeah. But the law is destitute. It's not enforced. It's violated. And so that being the case, we have a, we have a government that refused to acknowledge and enforce the law. When you do that, the government's functioning, in, I think, in an illegal fashion. And it creates then, when people come over, it creates what we label illegals. Now, I, I, again, I'm a, I'm a law and order guy. And so I recognize that crossing the border is, uh, illegally is no small thing. But when the government has set the stage for it, then what do you do? Yeah. And I propose that, that we, we don't do amnesty. That angers people on one side of the equation. We, we can't blow it off and say they didn't do wrong. They did wrong. But we, we start with the premise the government created the problem, and they created a horrific problem. Mm -hmm. That being the case, the way out, and it's been proposed by many much smarter, <clears throat> smarter than me. I'm not, I'm not the leader of the pack by any means on this. Uh, I'm a low man on the totem pole, but I, I want to contribute what voice I can. <clears throat> and there should be a pathway. I wouldn't call for a pathway to citizenship, but a pathway to legalization. And by a pathway to legalization, yes, there would be a fine to pay. Uh, there, there would be at that time. There would be any back taxes that might have not been paid. Mm -hmm. There's the learning of English, and that's not done because Spanish is the wrong language or something. It's a beautiful language. Wish I could speak Spanish, but that's because they, you want them to be able to have the full economic advantage of being in this country and education. And part of the, yeah. the history of America, civics, basic civics, the understanding of American values, the inculcation of that. The announcement of allegiance towards this country, renouncement of allegiance towards any other country, mm -hmm. as far as as far as legalization, your reason to stay here. I wouldn't call for citizenship because that becomes close borderline amnesty, but full legalization. And mm. almost every Hispanic that I've spoken to 
and we have a Hispanic congregation at our church. And we yeah, yeah. we have a Hispanic attorney, and we're trying to work with helping people to do what they've got to do to try to do this. But if we would go through the legalization process, if they're younger and and, and if they're if they're they were underage being brought in, then they could go the pathway to citizenship. But adults who came in, the only consequence would be left over would, would be legalization as opposed to citizenship. And, and, and they embrace this country, they fly the American flag proudly, and, and, and then, then at that point, you've now brought, in, you've brought into the country, you've recognized the issue and resolved the issue at this particular point. I do support Trump 100% that ferreting out those who are violent, nefarious means, or those that are trying to do things yeah, that sure. are wrong. Uh, there's about two million of those, and he should be totally supported uh, in that 100% and get the ones that are bona fide yeah. a harm to society and have been lawbreakers other than just the, the fact they came into the country, those should be rounded up and should be uh, taken out of the country as quickly as possible. So that would be, to me, a solution. And I think I recognize that everybody's got a viewpoint on this and everybody <laughs> wants to argue, debate yeah. it. But I think if we just if we just cut to the bottom, I think what I outlined could be and would be doable and most of the nation could accept it yeah i totally agree yeah i really do dr garlow i think thank you yeah it's it's you are the christian that we're looking up to yes. you are the role model for the rebel parenting you're a thoughtful person you're compassionate and you're doing the work you're going out there and going to the front lines i love that about you definitely oh. it's been such a treat to have you on today we appreciate you we really would like to have you back on to talk about well-versed uh, we, you know, we're trying to give just short primers on the introduction to politics to our listeners. I think it's a great place to start. So we're going to get your book, start reading it, and we'd love to have you back on. They can go to wellversedbook.com, and there's 31 short videos that go with the 31 chapters, and they can watch those for free if they want to. Awesome. Perfect. I'm going to have that in the show notes. Thanks, Dr. Garla. We appreciate you. Uh, good. It's great being on with you. Blessings on you. Bless you. you God bless. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you were inspired and educated like I was. It, it really did inspire me to do more, to be more involved, to build community, to invite people over to our homes. What an amazing man and an amazing church. Stream his service live every single Sunday. We'll have links up at rebelparenting.org. And one last time, if you haven't signed up for the newsletter, you can do so right now. I know you're listening on your phone. Just text the word REBEL to 444-999. Once again, text the word REBEL to 444-999 for exclusive alerts and updates and information. God bless. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing it with your friends. I can tell when you do. We'll see you next week.